0: First thing I want to mention is there were some questions about what we teach because of the whole Israel-Palestine thing. Um, about what Lutherans teach about the end times. That was some questions that I got, like, do Lutherans believe in the rapture or don't believe in the rapture, or what is your version of the rapture, or what about the millennium, or what about the relationship between the church and Israel? And I mean, all those different things. And so the, the resources that I would like to point out to you are here. So I have YouTube up right now. So Brian Wolfmuller um is a pastor in our synod. So you can see him right there. He's wearing the collar. Brian Wolfmuller. Um this has 72,000 views to give you an idea of his level of reach. He's uh, a big teacher in our synod. He has a call, he has an actual video. It's 10 minutes long called, What Does the Bible Teach About the Rapture? So you can see that there. So if you're interested in that before we get more into Samuel, that's right there. So what does the Bible teach about the rapture? So if you're interested, he also has another one. If you want a bigger view, the Lutheran view of the end times, and he uses index cards to show all the different views and then explain why we teach what we teach based on scripture and things like the millennium and all those different things. And so he's talking through all the different, he first gives you kind of all the views and then gives you our position. And so that'll kind of help you understand that. So Brian Wolfmuller Brian with a Y actually I actually can highlight that with my mouse here on your screen right down there. If you see it, Brian Wolfmuller. So he's a teacher in Arch synod um, and he's uh, often present uh, on a lot of our media channels. So issues, et cetera, the radio show, um, a podcast, he has his own podcast that he does. So if you're interested in that, um, he does some good things. So that's Brian Wolfmuller. If you are just again, it's just a resource for you. Um, each one of these, one is 15 minutes, the other is 10 minutes. I use these in my high school classes.
1: So for juniors I, I and seniors. Those videos this is really good very plainly lays it out so it's easy to understand.
0: Right, exactly. Very quick Yeah. So if you want, if you want to know what we teach, this is it. If you get confused by me or if I'm talking too fast, watch Brian Wolfmueller. He does not talk as fast as me. Okay. <laughs> Um, there are some Lutheran teachers that do talk as fast as me, but that, that's not Brian Wolfmuller is not that guy. And he's very, very clear, very, very good teacher. And again, he uses index cards and uses sheets. He's kind of low tech. It's kind of funny. Um, but he does a pretty good job with these things. And so I would recommend him in general to know what we teach about a lot of things. Um, he has some really good videos out there. So I would recommend Brian Wolfmuller. Now, if you want kind of the next level, so this is like. If you want to know what Lutherans teach about things, you want to share a YouTube channel. The first person I say is share Brian Wolfmuller. That's the first person I say. If you want this ne- kind of next level, or you want somebody that's a little more philosophical, or will like cover every angle, that kind of thing, the guy I would recommend next is Dr. Jordan Cooper. Oh,
1: yeah.
0: um, Dr. Jordan Cooper is in our sister Senate. He's the president of American Association of Lutheran Churches. It's their seminary. Our Fort Wayne campus hosts their seminary because we're in like full fellowship with each other. Dr. Jordan Cooper um, and he has a big beard. And he's like, he looks like he's, he's from the East coast. So he wears nicer clothes and he has a very well-groomed beard and he has like this incredible library and stuff like that. In fact, some of my library is because of he the stuff he recommended to be honest. Um, and he's more like me in that he's, Covering all the history and all the different views. And this is what we believe. This is what we don't believe. This is what that's kind of me. And so Jordan Cooper's like that. So the two teachers that I would recommend right away, if you have questions about what we teach as Lutherans on the end times, you can see this. What's the Lutheran view of the end times? Then Brian Wolf Mueller's again, I would start with Wolf Mueller because he uses these graphic like cars that he makes. And it's pretty neat. And if you want to know what we teach about the rapture, of course, he has another one. You can just search Brian Wolfmuller. So I would recommend Wolf Mueller and Jordan Cooper as Orthodox Lutheran teachers so you can get a better idea of what we teach. Now, I, And the reason is I'm going to get into Samuel here in a second, and I don't have time to do this. Otherwise, we'd watch one of them together, and then we'd start going through it. You know what I'm saying? But that's not what this class is. So I'm just giving you this resource. Jordan Cooper also has one. He does these things of five reasons. I'm not a Roman Catholic. Five reasons um, I'm this, five problems with the Book of Mormon, you know, that sort of thing. He does these. And he, he has one, five problems with what people call the rapture. And he goes through this because we we believe that Jesus is coming back. Don't get me wrong. And that we're going to meet Christ in the air. Those who are like, we absolutely confess that because that's scriptural. But the way it's portrayed in American Christianity, in, in particular, certain subsets of evangelicalism, we do not do that. And so he's going to explain why based on the scriptures. Um, I'll give you one little brief a moment, just to give you a preview from uh, from Brian Wolfmuller. He's going to go through that text where Jesus is talking about the end times. And he says, in the end, there will be two women grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left, right? Or there'll be two people walking on a journey and one will be taken and the other left. And so a lot of popular culture starting in the 1970s with the movie, The Thief in the Night, was that that's the rapture. And so God's people are getting raptured out. And then the people that are left behind, you don't want to be left behind, right? Well, if you read earlier in that passage, those who are taken away are actually taken away in Noah's flood they're taken away into judgment so it's, it actually means the opposite of what people think it means because they're take the people that are taken away are the ones that are being judged they're taken away they're being wiped out by the flood right so in the context of that passage that really famous passage that people point to it actually means the opposite of what people think it means and you want to be the one that's left behind because the one that's taken away is in the waters of the flood and so cuz that's the that's that's the immediate context this is why context matters and when you use scripture to interpret scripture he's going to go into that a little bit And you can see how he goes through verse by verse on how we teach that that's just my one preview to show you how important this is and we need to be able to to teach those things so if you don't know that about why we teach what we teach Ryan Wolfmuller, Jordan Cooper. Wolfmuller is the one that does that in this passage here. Wolfmuller is a little bit more broad um, in his approach. So if you want to see those. All right. And that's Cooper. Okay. So I just wanted to show that out there. Just recommend those resources. Those resources are in the recording. Okay. So everybody, now that you're all joining us. And now that more people are here, I was supposed to show off our trophy. Okay. So we're we're proud as a high school. You can clap. Yeah. there we go. And everybody can see it online. So if my girls see this, this is the trophy um, that our girls won at district. So again, still undefeated 21 and 0. Um, We beat the number four team in the state three times this year. So, I mean, we've kind of earned it. And they pushed us in that championship game. It was three games to two. Um, so they, they pushed us. They were gunning for us. It's hard to beat a good team three times, right? And so we we did win. So this is the trophy. We'll get the plate eventually, right? They they don't have the pre- plate pre-made at the tournament, obviously. And So we'll get a plate there. But that's the trophy. Um, and of course, you saw in the slides, if you were at worship this morning, you'll see it again at 11. Um, the thing that we're almost the most proud of is they're also academic state champs um, in, their conf- in their division. And so that's a big one. Their average GPA was 3.93 or 3.91 or something okay. like that. So that's really good, too. So we're happy about that. So there you go. Okay. So now it's on camera and my girls can say I was promoing them mm-hmm. and they'll be really excited about that. So <laughs> I'll leave that over there. Okay. We got to get back into Samuel. So I'll get us back into Samuel. So let me pull this back up. And my throat's a little dry. So if I have to take breaks to take drinks of water, um, it's because, uh, we went to city of rocks yesterday and hiked around up there. It was beautiful weather for that actually. Um, it was awesome day, but, uh, hiking out in the dry air and everything else is just a little, you know, a little dry. So if I'm drinking water, that's, I'll trust you, forgive me for that. Uh, This is an artistic depiction of Saul anointed, I mean, yeah, Saul being anointed by Samuel. So there's, he's got the horn of oil over top of him and you can see his hat is sort of supposed to be kind of like a bishop's mitra, but it's not because it's Old Testament. And he's wearing the ephod, right, the thing that the priest would wear. And so you could see the anointing of Samuel. And believe it or not, one of the most famous Renaissance artists of all time, Raphael actually has a depiction of this event when he shows the rustic nature of Saul. Remember, Saul is going around looking for donkeys. Saul is actually plowing um, and in this story a little bit. And so uh, Raphael, the Renaissance master, decided to do this, showing that. So you can see that flask of oil as Samuel anoints Saul. And he's got a shepherd's crook, which is not by accident because the rulers are supposed to be shepherds, right? They're supposed to be shepherds of God's people. Um, and, of course, Saul eventually is going to fail at that. And that's going to be kind of the, the point of our text. Now, you do have two outlines. Actually, one is uh, two maps. And that's just to give you a visualization. So I'm not projecting these on the screen. I wanted them in front of you. Um, For those of you who are watching online, forgive me, but these are maps of Saul's reign. Um, One is the previous where he rescues um, Jabesh Gilead. And then the other side is this battle called, it looks like Mishmash, but it's Michmash. Okay. But it looks like mishmash. (laughs) There's a battle that's going to take place. We're going to look at today and we're going to start to see hints of Saul's character in this passage. So you have those two maps just to give you a visualization because the Bible is going to talk about all these place names. And talk about even even craggy rocks have names. And so it gets kind of confusing because you see all these names. So having that visualization in front of you might help you kind of parse what's going on in uh, chapters 13 and 14 and as we, as we go further with Saul. So I just want to kind of throw that in there for you. And then you have that outline, of course, of chapters 12 and 13 for you. Because we're going to have Samuel's, what's sometimes called Samuel's farewell address. And then after Samuel's farewell address, we're going to see Saul truly kind of taking over. Um, He's done some work already in chapter 11. If you remember, he actually uh, defeats the Philistines and saves a town. And so he shows himself worthy to be king in that sense. But there's still some hesitation. And so Samuel very publicly is saying, this is the history of how things have gone. This is now your king. It's almost like John the Baptist and Jesus. I must decrease so he can increase. There's a little of that going on with, with Samuel and Saul. But Samuel's still going to be important after the story because he's got another king to anoint just a few chapters later. So let's just keep that in mind. So here's how this starts. First Samuel 12, 1 through 4. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? or whose donkey have I taken, or whom have I defrauded, whom have I oppressed, or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. Okay, so let's stop right here. So after after 1 Samuel 11, we think there's a gap of time here where there's just relative peace or relative calm as Saul grows up a little bit. Um, you're going to get a weird passage in 13 where the text tradition doesn't even give us the right number. We don't even know what the number is. We have to go to the Book of Acts actually to find out how long Paul actually. I mean, Saul was actually ruler. There's a couple of textual reasons for that. But the point is, is uh, 1 Samuel 11 to 1 Samuel 12. There's kind of a cutoff here. It's like Samuel's like, okay, now that we've got everything figured out, let's start this. And so we don't know the exact time when Samuel gives this speech. Is the the reason I bring this up? And so here's Samuel saying, "This is who I am." I've been with you since the beginning, right? Of my whole life, when I was a small child, I was in the temple. I have not done anything wrong. And if I have, I'm going to repay you. Tell me, have I done anything wrong? So now you know who I am. I've been your faithful servant. I've been your faithful judge this entire time. I've been a prophet for you this entire time. What have I done wrong? And so look what, and so the, and they, they agree with him. The assembly of the people of Israel say, you're right. You're, you've been faithful. You've been faithful. We have nothing against you. And so he does that on purpose, by the way, because he's trying to he's setting up a case. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you and his anointed is a witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. By the way, his anointed, that's a reference to Saul. So Saul's present here okay, in this assembly when Samuel's speaking to the people and Saul himself as the next leader of Israel is a witness saying that Samuel has done everything correctly. And they said, He is witness, that he is Saul. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still, that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he has performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt, and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord. And the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt, and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hands of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against him. Anybody know what book of the Bible this is a reference to? Anybody? Is it, uh, judges? judges. This is the Judges, because look what, look what he says in the following passage. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned, because we have forsaken the Lord, and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel. You know who that is? Gideon, okay? So Gideon and Barak. Barak is the one who's with Deborah, right? Okay, and Jephthah. And then look who he says, Samuel. So Samuel himself calls himself a judge. So that's where you're getting that transition here, okay? And delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us. When the lord your god was your king and now behold the king whom you have chosen for whom you have asked behold the lord has sent a king to you what do you think samuel's doing here i do this with my high school kids i'm like what's the point if you were teaching like if you're teaching like second grade sunday school and they had to read this let's say they're reading the bible and i'm like what would you say samuel's actually doing what's his purpose well and he's saying what has god not done for you right look at the history look at the history Remember that whole cycle in Judges, right? You can find these circles, right? Israel forgets God. God lets Israel become oppressed. Israel cries out. God sends a judge. Israel says, yay, God. And then they forget about God again. And so then God sends another. And it goes over and over and over for about 400 years. That's the cycle. Each right. Each, and each time the Judges' characters are worse also. And so then you end up with Samuel, right? And you see the state of the priests. We've seen this in First Samuel. Eli's sons are sleeping around with women they're taking the the, the choice parts of the sacrifices even samuel's own sons don't aren't like samuel and that's why they're present he they're present in this meeting by the way because one of the reasons they asked for a king is because they don't think samuel's sons can do it because they're not people of integrity integrity like he is but every time there's been a problem god has cho has shown up god has fulfilled his promises every time And yet they're not willing to look at that and instead say, we need a king like everybody else. So Samuel's indict, this is an indictment. This is an indictment of the people of Israel. And eventually they figure it out too late, but they do figure it out. All right, let's keep going. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And if you both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord, your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know that and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. This, by the way, this is like winter wheat, the way they do things. So this is probably in April or May. It's already dry in Israel at this time, climatology wise. So to have a, so have any rain would have been abnormal to have a thunderstorm would have freaked them out because that is not normal. Okay. That would the equivalent for us, even though it's not really, um, we wouldn't be harvesting at the time. It would be like getting a thunderstorm in February in other words it would be that weird like we would be saying okay this is a it's a freak of nature sort of thing and this is done because of God's prophet right so samuel called upon the lord and the lord sent thunder and rain that day and all the people greatly feared the lord and samuel lord first samuel because he's his spokesperson right that's the idea and by the way if it's wheat harvest do you want rain this is this is this is a warning right if you if you obey god's commandments if you're staying in god's covenant if you're living in his grace and blessing then you're going to have some good harvests. But if you disobey God and you start to live like the pagan nations, guess what's going to happen to your harvest in the future? You're not going to have any harvest, right? They're going to be rotted out or it's going to be limited and you're going to starve. You're going to need to buy from others and you're going to be servants of other nations. Go ahead. Right, the grasshoppers, locusts. And if you, as we go in this story, just so you know, these books of Kings and we get to the prophets, it's exactly what happens. Is God uses pestilence. God uses foreign nations, even during harvest time. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord, your God, that we may not die for. We have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. They finally get it, at least temporarily. <laughs> they finally get it They're, that Samuel has. This is, by the way, what we call the preaching of the law. Right. This is the preaching of the law. There's law and gospel in this. This is law. Here's how you screwed up. Here's what will happen to you if you don't repent. Here's what your status is before God. All it takes is a word from God and your crops would be destroyed and you could die if you cross God. This is law. And in reality, if we were talking about ourselves, it's the same thing. The only reason any of us live, it's one of those there, but for the grace of God, go I moments, right? Because if God, the, the universe, who knows everything we've ever thought, dreamt, slept, every everything we've ever done in private, everything we've ever dreamed about, that God has every right, every right, he's holy and righteous to kill us in our sleeps. He has every right, but he doesn't because he is also loving, gracious, merciful, abounding in steadfast love, compassionate, but he, by rights, it would be just for him to do so, right? This is the preaching of law, okay? This is what law is, okay? And Samuel said to the people, look at this. Now we're going to get a word of grace. Remember law of gospel? Word of grace. Do not be afraid that you have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. So it's not because they've earned this, obviously, at this point, right? This is grace. Don't be afraid. Even though you've done all these sins, God's going to work with you anyway. That's grace. This is gospel. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. This is Samuel acting priestly. The priest is an advocate before God, right? The priest is 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 an intercessor. That's the word we use, intercessory prayer, to intercess on behalf of the people. And so pastors today are intercessors when they pray for the people. Dads, as the priests of the family, I'm using that in quotes loosely, are intercessors for their children, right? Of course, moms too. Do you get the point that I'm making on this? So we all intercess. And so Sam was like, I would be sinning my, as my duty, as your leader, as your judge, and as your priest, right? I would be sinning if I was not praying for you because that's my job. That's my vocation. God has called me to do so. And so he's like, I'm going to keep praying for you. Just because you screwed this up doesn't mean I've given up on you. How often do you think pastors think that in their
1: heads?
0: (laughs) Yeah, every day. It's like, you you know, and of course, Jesus himself does this with his disciples, right? Sometimes when they keep, they don't get it and you could just see him. All right, let's do this again, right? But God, because he's abundant in steadfast love, because God is infinite and God is merciful. He forgives it again and again and again and again. Which means our response should be one of love and gratitude, of course, right? Well, God's gonna, this, that's why Paul says what he says sometimes. So, because grace can abound, should we sin more? No. He says, God forbid, or may it never be, right? Depending on your translation. No, let's live in that and actually live in our sanctified grace and war against the flesh is what Paul says, right? So, there's a lot of New Testament connections here. So, it's pretty neat. Listen to this, and this is only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things He has done for you. But if you do still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Remember, Saul's here. Saul has been warned. Okay, because Saul's going to do some stuff. <laughs> okay, and that's why Saul Saul starts really really good. He's prophesying um, in in chapters ten and eleven. Right, God creates a new heart within him, and he's he's there, and then he starts to get worse, and then he starts to get stubborn, and then he starts to get presumptuous, and then he starts to get jealous, and then you know, it's just it's just this chain of events. Sin beget, Have you ever heard the phrase sin, be, sin begets sin? Saul is a really good example of this, okay? Saul's a really good example of this, okay? Uh, oh, I also made a note for you in here, by the way, where it talked about empty things, that the idols are empty. In your handout, you have this. The word for empty here is tohu, that's a Hebrew word for the same word that at the beginning of creation, everything was formless and void. That's tohu al in Hebrew. So in other words formless and void, that these idols are formless and void. They're, they're meaningless. There's no form to them. They're, they have no meaning. It's lifeless until God says, and let there be God's the author of life. And so these idols are formless. They have no power. It's chaos. Yes, go for it. This part where... Uh...
1: Saul so was acting as our intercessor.
0: Oh, yeah. Samuel, you mean? Yeah,
1: uh, Samuel. Sorry, Samuel. Um, reading that, I'm, I'm looking at this, I'm saying this, I'm thinking to myself, this almost um, validates Mary as being an intercessor for us. If, so, if uh, Samuel can pray for us. now he's a living king, but the Catholics have Mary as an intercessor. Uh, where's
0: the difference? Okay, so first off, you just said it. Samuel's standing right there as opposed to Mary, right? So there's one answer right there. There's, there's the easy answer. Second of all, um, we're commanded to pray without ceasing and to pray for each other throughout the Old and the New Testaments. There is nothing in the scripture that says that Mary or the saints in heaven do so. We do have those passage, passages where they say, how long, O Lord? But the idea that somehow you can pray to them so that they can talk to God—you do not find that anywhere in Scripture. Oh, I know
1: you had that's why I looked at that. Right,
0: right. They may they may point to that, but you have nothing in Scripture, which is why we say you know Scripture is our norming norm. It's our ultimate authority, right? And so there's nothing in Scripture that says that the saints of heaven are praying for us in that way. They do they do ask God how long, O oh Lord, you know, until you come back. That's that in front of the, that's the martyrs, right, in Revelation. But we don't really have. Data That says that. So those are the reasons. The other thing I would say about this is in the Old Testament, of course, these priests and kings are standing in the place of where Christ will stand. Right. So with Samuel or with, Sam or with David or with Isaiah or with, I mean, whether they're the priest or they're the king or the prophets, it's all temporary. They all die. Right. They all die. And so now because Christ has come, this is why we have the book of Hebrews in many ways. Right. We have that great and faithful high priest. So now we can approach God boldly, the throne of grace, because we are in Christ. So the other answer I would have to that is, yeah, back in the Old Testament, I could see why you thinking that you need all the help you can get, you know, that sort of thing. But now that Christ has come, you don't need that. Why would you go to somebody else when you go direct? Right why why would you why would you go for the second why would you go for for third place when you can go for first place you know i mean that's i mean it's just kind of odd to me yeah go ahead the veil in
1: temple was
0: torn right there's a direct access in the new covenant so that's a that's a little bit of a convoluted answer but i think i give you three or four reasons why we would say that this that this is not a reference to that that intercess we all should be engaged in intercessory prayer to a certain extent praying for each other and praying for that sort of thing but in terms of what the scriptures teach there's nothing that says that once those who are with Christ or those who have departed this life are all of a sudden still active or that they, they can hear our prayers even. You know, you'd have there's a lot of assumptions there. Um, and I can explain more. Eastern Orthodoxy does this also, right, where they have like intercessory prayer and they have saints and those sort of things. And again, we like the saints. They're great examples. I mean, we celebrate President's Day in the kingdom of the left. We can celebrate Saints Days in the kingdom of the right. Look what you did in this, this person's life. Like Samuel. We have Samuel on our church calendar. Lord, thank you for working through Samuel. This is awesome. Help me to have faith like this. So it's not like saints days are bad. It's just when we say, oh, Samuel, who used to live here, please intercede and pray for me. Okay. Why would you do that when Christ has already done the work and you can act directly approach the father? You know, you see what I'm saying? And so that's changed also. I would argue that sometimes they, they're actually going backwards uh, in in Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodox. And I think they're Christians. Don't get me wrong. I think they're Christians. Okay. But sometimes I think some of that is going backwards towards the old Testament and actually takes away from the merits of Christ. That would that would be. And that's actually if you read our confessions, especially the apology of the Augsburg Confession, we are like over and over. This is Melanchthon. He says over and over again about the merits of Christ, that this would take away from the merits of Christ. Uh, Pastor Dinger, I think in his grad school paper, went and counted how many times he says something like that. And it's like in the hundred. It's like over a hundred. He says this merits of Christ, merits of Christ, merits of Christ to emphasize that this would take away from if we believe that these sort of things. And so by saying Mary, you know, like praying the rosary or something like that. There is a Lutheran rosary, by the way, that's completely different. Okay. But in the, but in the, it's, it's not a really common practice, but there is one that's out there. If you want to research that, you can research that Jordan Cooper, who I showed you actually talks about this, but it would be um, anyways to say, you know, Mary mother of God, you know, blessed, blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. You know, that's part of that help us in the hour of our need and the hour of our death. Why would you do that? When you can just say, Lord, save me for the merits of Christ remember my baptism, Lord, you know, help me remember my baptism, help my unbelief, create faith in me. And, you know, in Holy Communion, I know I have forgiveness of sin. Why would you substitute that? Or why would you cling to a, different, a lesser promise when you have the ultimate promise? You know, that's the sort of thing. That's one of the reasons I'm not Roman Catholic, honestly, is, is, is this, are these issues is because of these, the Mariology and also just some of the stuff involving prayers yeah. and saints. It just, it troubles me because I think like our confessions say, it takes away from the merits of Christ. And so, I don't know, that was a long answer, but it got me going. No, yeah. (laughs) No. Yeah. All right. All right. And so that's where we were. Fear fear the Lord. So again, law and gospel, right? There's law and gospel in this passage. You've screwed up, but God's going to do something with you anyways. Of course, ultimately, he's going to raise Christ through this people, this stubborn and stiff-necked people, as he calls them. All right. So then we get to Saul, chapter 13, and you have this in your outline. Saul lived, and this is weird. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. Now, if you read that first verse, do you understand why that sounds bizarre? Saul lived for one year. He didn't become a king when he was a baby. So what in the world is going on? There are multiple interpretations of this. And even the, the manuscripts, like the Septuagint, the Greek translation, and the Hebrew manuscripts don't even necessarily agree on this issue. And so there's some theories on this. Now, this is not a major issue in terms of scripture. Um, this could be a copyist issue and those sort of things. The view that I found kind of entertaining that some scholars have, and it's in this big first Samuel commentary I have from Concordia, this one here, this first Samuel one that I use as one of my resources, is that they're trying to demean Saul. Think so, think about this. Saul lived from one year. This would have been after his anointing, is the idea, right? Became king when he had reigned for two years over Israel. Um, It never actually gives you the number of years that he reigned the entire time. Like I said, you have to go to the book of Acts. Now, David does reign for over 40 years. And so I think what's going on, and this is some comment, not everybody agrees on this, but some commentators think that the author of 1 Samuel, whoever the priest was, the scribe was based on these eyewitness testimony and these manuscripts was trying to say, Saul really didn't reign as a true king for very long. That using these numbers, they're saying, yeah, David reigned for 40 years, but Saul, he was really only good for two of them. You see what they're doing here? And so that's the common interpretation. Um, Some manuscripts don't even have a number there. So it's almost like they're intentionally saying Saul... Screws up. Saul goes the wrong way. But this is a this is a known textual issue in the Old Testament. And you have a on your guide. I gave it from. I think it was from the ESV Study Bible note that I gave you something on that on the on that back side explaining what these numbers mean. And they're going to go through a different thing on that too. But you have to use the rest of Scripture to figure out how long he actually reigned. It's kind of interesting. Anyway, continuing the text, Saul shows three thousand men of Israel. 3,000 back then is a pretty big number, by the way. Now it's not so big. Back then, that was a big number. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gabeah in Benjamin. This is where we first meet Jonathan, Saul's faithful son, right? The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. So this is kind of Paul, Saul's chosen army. It's kind of his standing army. Uh, Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba and the Philistines heard of it and Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land saying, let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it and said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. That word, by the way, literally means like a, a foul odor, a stench to the Philistines. I mean, just thinking about the Israelites made the Philistines think of like dead fish or something. Like, they they really did not like the Hebrews and the Israelites at this point. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered a fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. It's a huge force for the time. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, The people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns, right? Wells. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and the people followed him trembling. By the way, I was just, I just told you, I was just at City of Rocks. When I was setting for this, I was like, "It's really hard for me not think of City of Rocks. if you have ever been there? There's caves and outcroppings and think places to hide everywhere." And my my son took a picture where he's like below between two rocks, you know. <laughs> so you get this image of like people kind of like it's like gophers in holes, right? All kind of crutch down all these different places, but in tombs and in wells. I mean, they're that freaked out. They're trying to hide from the Philistines because this number is ginormous to use the modern uh, colloquial saying. Okay, he waited seven days. The time appointed by Samuel. Why would you wait seven days? What is, what's the significance of that? What do you think? Yeah, it's the number of completion. And so it's a complete time waiting for God's plan and God's design. It's also a way for the people of Israel to set themselves apart and be consecrated because they're a holy people. So this is not just, all right, we've got to recruit some more people. And then when we got this X number, we're just going to go on whenever we have it. It's we need to wait seven days because seven is a number for completeness. It also allows us to do a Sabbath right, to go through a Sabbath ceremony um, because it shows that we're different from people and wait for God's counsel. So he waited for seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattering from him. So they're, they're freaked out and Saul's starting to lose his army. He's starting to get some desertions. They're starting to leave him. So look what he does. Saul said, bring me the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down from me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. This is, yeah, this is a problem, okay? Okay. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. From then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be the prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. And they went up from Gilgal to Gabeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. He had 3,000. Now he has 600. And then his son, Jonathan, has another small contingent somewhere else, as you got that, right? That's going to be important later, just so you know. But first off, I want to ask this question. This is kind of a debate. What is the actual sin here? You know, like we know he sinned, and we know that Samuel calls him out for this. We know that something screwed up. But it doesn't seem like it's, it's not like he commits adultery like David does with Bathsheba and he gets Uriah killed, right? This is not, this does not this isn't adultery. This isn't necessarily even lying. So what is, why is this a problem? There's a few reasons. And I gave you some on your sheet too, if you'd like to look at those. But in your own minds, as you're looking at this, I'm being the teacher now. Where do you think Saul screwed up? I mean, I'm interested in your opinion before I give you my my opinion. Where do you think he screwed up? Go ahead, Rochelle. I can tell you're ready.
1: think so. And thought, well, okay, I, I'm not going to wait for that. I can go ahead and do the thing that the priest is supposed to do. So he offered the the offering himself and, and it was wrong. You can't do that. You've got to do things the way God wants you to do them.
0: Okay, so he's acting presumptuously. Yeah. I like that, right? And kind of pridefully. Yeah, go ahead. He has a pride problem, by the way, yeah. throughout this whole thing. That's why, I mean, throughout this whole thing, pride is a big thing with Saul. Okay, he has a big pride problem. Go ahead.
1: It's almost like he picked up his magic amulet.
0: I'm glad you made this connection I'm glad you made this connection Do you remember what the Israelites did In chapters 4-7 through seven with the Ark of the Covenant mm-hmm. They presumed to go in the battle Because then if they have the Ark Then God's going to automatically bless them And they viewing viewing it like a magic trick Like a magic talisman Saul is using the sacrifices the same way He's saying Well, I need to do these Otherwise God's not going to bless this So I'm just going to do it myself Because I haven't done this yet And so I'm going to go and I'm going to force myself. I'm going to force the issue. Otherwise, my army is going to be even smaller. So I'm going to do it on my terms. And then God's going to bless me for me doing it on my terms. That's a problem. So Saul is acting like the rest of the Israelites rather than being somebody who's like God or somebody who's representing God or somebody who's representing God's ways. He's instead acting like the people that were clamoring for a king. It's
1: it's kind of funny because it's him saying, I forced myself. That's like, yeah. That's like fake humility. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. That's where I think you can get that pride element that's in here. Paul, Saul is very prideful, right? He's very prideful. Okay, and so yes, there was a couple other comments. It's also true he should not be doing this in general because God set up. I mean, Samuel's supposed to do this. Saul is not a Levite, right? Saul is not. So he's violating that also, and he's doing it. And Here's the important thing: he's doing this very publicly. This is with the entire army. This is not some sin in private. this isn't this doesn't involve like four or five people. This is thousands of people are seeing this, okay, and Samuel shows up later, and the people see that Samuel shows up later. okay This is all public. and so this is God, you remember Saul Samuel, these are God's representatives, right? This is a complete abrogation of duty and acting presumptuously on his own terms. And so God, God sees his character because we know later God looks at the heart, right? And since God sees Saul, Saul's heart, he gives Samuel his word. You're you are not going to have a dynasty. right? This is not going to be you. Go ahead.
1: And he said clearly, um, I have not asked the favor of the Lord. Yeah. I just did it.
0: Yeah, have- he had not done it. And so by doing this, by presum- presuming to do it, now I have done it. Which, again, is like the Ark of the Covenant story a little bit. It's yeah, the talisman. the talisman thing. Yep. So there you go. So then, of course, we get this. So Saul is down to 600 here at the end of a, a 13 here. Let's keep going. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin. Now, remember, Saul, Saul is a Benjamite. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. Okay. But the Philistines in at Michmash. And the raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. This is a raiding party. Okay, This is not the full army. These are raiding parties. These are like scouts and advanced troops. Okay, And raider, uh, and one company turned towards Ophrah to the land of Shual. Another company turned towards Beth Haron. And another company turned towards the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboiom towards the wilderness. This is why you have your maps, by the way. You don't need to memorize these. I don't memorize these. It's just to show you that this is based in real places. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, "Lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears." That's fascinating. So the Philistines have iron; the Hebrews do not. They this is the Iron Age. We're getting close to the Bronze Age, also. So this is Iron Age, Bronze Age, and so there's no forge. There's no um, forges. There's no blacksmiths. There's no places for Israelites to find their weapons because the Philistines wouldn't allow them. And they didn't have that technology. But the Philistines did have that technology. So not only do you have 30,000 plus troops, they have better weapons. Right? So there's no blacksmith. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock. That's like a big hammer. Like think dwarves in mythology, right? Okay. His axe or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks. And a third a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goats. So on the day of battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. So the royalty, of course, you have choice weapons as the king, right? And the king's son, you have choice. Maybe the armor bearers had some extra things too, right? But you get the, this is a peasant army. That's what you're supposed to think about right here. This is a peasant army, right? This is pitchforks is what we'd say, right? This is like in the Middle Ages, you see the peasants with pitchforks because of the invading army, and that's like all you've got left of the pitchforks. They're taking their farming implements, hammers, sickles, pitchforks, and going to war with those. Pretty amazing to think about what's going to happen here. By the way, remember the book of Judges? Remember how Gideon was mentioned? God's going to reduce them to 300, create confusion. There's, if you know the book of Judges, there's perhaps some parallels here that are going on just to, just to help you. Yeah, go ahead.
1: There are so many parallels here. Of Israel in the nation. Oh yeah. In 48, they had
0: nothing and they still defeated their enemies. Oh yeah. Yeah. If you have one to talk modern history,
1: yeah. in 67 they had our throwaways, and they fixed them up and made them work. And they beat their enemy again.
0: And then 73 is another one, right? Yeah. So yeah, you can go on through our history there for the modern day. Yeah. It's a parallel All right. So that's how it, so that's how on the on the outline. That's how I and I got like three or four minutes with you. This is to set the scene. So that the author is brilliant. So if you're writing, if you were reading first Samuel for the first time and you've never heard it before. In your own brain, you're supposed to be thinking, "Okay, Saul has screwed up. They're outnumbered thirty thousand to six hundred. Oh, they have no real weapons. Only the king. How's God going to figure this out? See, see what I mean. So, I mean, that's that's what you're supposed to be thinking. Imagine yourself to be that original reader, and what is and the idea is, what's God going to do? Pretty good man. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, exactly. And again, it should give you some ideas to parallel with the book of Judges. And what's going to be amazing about this is it's going to set up the character of both Jonathan and eventually David. Because Saul here is hesitating, right? He's hesitating. He's, in, he's, he's, in, he's hesitant to go into battle, but he's impatient to wait on God. Why? Because he values himself. Right? Think about it. You're, you're, you don't want to wait on God's timing because it's not my timing. And I want to protect my own skin, so I'm hesitant to go against the Philistines. Do you see the pride issue here, right? How he values himself over all things. And God's going to look at that and compare him to David. But also we're going to see Saul's son, who is who is really the king that Saul is supposed to be. Because Jonathan does trust in God. Jonathan does go up with just two people in the next chapter. And actually think about the weapons. Now Jonathan has weapons, right? He has good weapons, but nobody else does. Jonathan's going to go on like kind of like what I'd call like an undercover mission. And he actually starts winning, and that forces Saul into action. That's the next, that's the next chapter. I'm going to give you a little spoiler alert, right? Because remember, I told you, you're supposed to, you know, if you were hearing this, remember, this was almost, most people didn't have these manuscripts, right? So in this culture, these were read in the synagogue, or if they had the temple or the tabernacle. And so when you told these stories to kids, because you were supposed to remember, Deuteronomy 6, you, you shall wear this word of God as a front between your eyes when you get up, when you go down, all these different things. So, if you're a Hebrew parent and you're telling your kids the story about this mighty battle that's going to take place, you get to this pass. The garrison of the Philistines went out. All right, go to sleep. I'll tell you more tomorrow. You're like, no, mom, no, dad. You know, you see what's going on? That's what they would have done. They would have used these as real salvation history. And that's why it's important that we do these things. So my application for you before we go here today is do we share like Samuel in 1 Samuel 12? He goes through all salvation history, right? Moses, Egypt judges. Here we have this moment. You can hear the drama that's being built up as we tell how God's going to act through his people in spite of ourselves. Do we with our own kids or with our friends or with our neighbors share what God has done? That's what we need because that's what we do. We we recount salvation history. It's for encouragement. And so we should be more vocal about how God's done things in our lives. Not that it's a word of God like Samuel. Of course, we don't presume that, right? But we can still point to moments in our lives where we can say, God did something for me. You should know this. Because we sometimes, you know, we look at these scripture passages and say, wouldn't it be awesome, you know, to be alive in 1000 BC and see God do these mighty things? It's like, what are you talking about? He's doing mighty things right now. But sometimes we don't talk about them because, and and rightfully so, we're hesitant because we don't want to presume to say that God spoke or those sort of things. And I get that. And as Lutherans, we're good. We're not charismatics. We're not Pentecostals, you know, speaking in tongues, every service or something like that. I get it. However, We should still be talking about the mighty works of God. And so we have these stories, too. So when we recount salvation history, what's your salvation history, right? Whether it's your baptism and you've been raised as a Christian throughout your life. Maybe you backslid. Maybe you're like Saul, but then God called you back or like David. And then you had to repent in sackcloth and ashes and then brought you back to himself. Maybe you were delivered from a disease or cancer or something like that, or maybe you have a friend that was, or maybe God brought you to a certain place, and it was truly a God thing, even though everything is really a God thing, as Pastor Dinger will say, okay? Okay, that's, that's my story. So, so I'll just tell it. So, so just to show you, I'll, I'll lead by example, and then we'll close with the blessing. The only reason I'm before you, would, for before you today, you know, we say a God thing. I, I don't know if you know this. I was at an independent Bible Baptist church in Chicago. I graduated from Wheaton College. And I got a master's degree in theology at Liberty University and Liberty's Baptist. Okay. We're in Chicago. We're in the Chicago area. This is 2008, nine area, 2008, nine, the financial crisis hits. Right. And so my wife, who's a band teacher, they're not hiring music teachers in Illinois. They had a, they had a school district, Elgin school district was $1 billion in the red by itself, by itself. They're not hiring anything but core teachers. And so I was like, you know what? Look West, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, look West because they at least have to balance their budgets. And so it's less traumatic when things like this happen. She was a finalist in three states, Pocatello, uh, Helena, Montana, here in Pokey, and then a place called Upton, Wyoming. It's in the Northeast corner. Okay. She was a finalist in all three, actually interviewed in Upton and the other person got it. This was the next one that called her back and they offered her the position. So we moved to Pocatello for her to take this position. Okay. I'm finishing my master's in theology at a Baptist seminary. I want you to think about that. Okay. I get here at the end of my studies and I'm like, you know what? I'm pretty sure the sacraments are a thing because I'm looking at church history and I'm reading people say things like the the Eucharist is the medicine of immortality. And this was somebody who knew John the apostle. And I'm like, okay, I think he knows better than we do. And so I was, I came out here to Pocatello and I was like, you know, Jen, I've got four options. Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Lutheran or Anglican. I got four options because they actually have sacramental theology. And I talked to a Baptist pastor and he said, go up to the hill on Grace Lutheran and talk to Jonathan Dinger. He's a biblical conservative and they have, I think, what you're looking for. So I want you to get what's going on here. Okay. Baptist school, Baptist pastor of telling me to go to the Lutheran church. Okay. Just, and I sent Jonathan this, you may have heard this. I sent Jonathan like a six paragraph email. It's like the weirdest introduction email he's ever gotten. He has it somewhere, I think. He saved it because it was he had never gotten something like this. It was like, it was like a confession of faith. You know, this is what I believe about things. It's like, yeah, you can come. I think we're good. Keep coming. You know, that sort of thing. And then a year and a half later, I was baptized. He got baptized because he was our first kid. And then I was teaching Sunday school within like two years. Okay. And then he's like, we're going to build a high school. We need to make this work for two, three years. And we did, by the grace of God. I had like five different jobs simultaneously, like five different part-time jobs. And then we opened this high school. So we moved here for my wife's job, but we really moved here for my job. Think about that. So that's where, and there's, I mean, the financial crisis is involved with this. Being said no to in Wyoming, because we would have moved to Wyoming. It was great pay, by the way. But they said no to us. This was the one that called back. You see what I'm saying? There's no way I could have designed that. And so the reason I'm before you today is because God still does things. That's my point. Mm-hmm. What was that? Yeah. She. The joke is they uh, they were out of rental cars in Grand Rapids uh, in Rapid City, South Dakota. That was the airport that was closest, and so they were out of rental cars. So they gave her. Um, uh, was it? no, it was a Camaro. They gave her a Camaro, and then she's like, "Yeah, I'm in Eastern Wyoming," and like, "Yeah, I can move from the big city out here. I'm sure that worked for me." You know, that was kind of a joke. So, all right, we should say the blessing on ourselves, and then I'll let you. The Lord bless us and keep us. The Lord make his face shine upon us and be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace. Amen. We're going to try to do 14 through 16, just so you know if you want to read ahead uh, next week. Okay? If you have any questions or comments, email them to podcast at gracepocatello.org. And make sure to subscribe to our channel to stay up to date on sermons and classes at Grace Lutheran Church in Pocatello, Idaho. This podcast
1: is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go.